Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie. Welcome to the Mag Culture Podcast. It's been a while since we've recorded one of these, partly because we've been busy just keeping the shop ticking over with a reduced team during lockdown. But we've also discovered Instagram Live, and to date I've done 12 Mag Culture Meets interviews using that channel. Initially, I thought these would be a useful um, feed into the podcast, but they've actually developed a life of their own. And I've really been enjoying chatting with people from printers and other magazine shops, as well as from magazines including Real Review, The Plant, Pop-Up Magazine and Noon. If you missed them, they're available to view on our Vimeo channel. We've also recently held our first online Zoom conference. Uh, Speakers from Singapore, Amsterdam and New York joined others from London to look at how they and their magazines have dealt with the coronavirus pandemic. This ranged from ordinary magazines Max Seedentop sharing personal work created in response to the lockdown to Gail Bishler's overview of how the New York Times magazine has covered COVID with their customary elan and uh, brilliance. The conference raised a few hundred pounds for health charities and it's also available to view on Vimeo now. We're charging a £5 fee but that'll go straight to the charities as well. Now, later in this podcast, we'll be hearing about iMagazine's 100th issue. But first, I want to take a look at some other recent arrivals at the Mag Culture Shop and also talk about um, some other issues. It's too early to really know the effect of the pandemic on the wider magazine industry, but clearly the next few months are going to be challenging, to say the least. Already I'm aware that several of our favourite magazines, California Sunday Magazine, Mundial, have announced the suspension of their print editions. They're going to carry on digitally, um, but the idea of suspending, I, I, I just it seems to me that once they shift the digital, they're not going to be returning to print, and I think that's a real loss. And I expect we'll be hearing more of this in the near future. But mostly, the independent magazines have continued to publish, albeit sometimes on a delayed schedule and with a reduced print run. The real business uh, issue over the uh, pandemic has been the, the effect on the distribution chains. Warehouses have been closed and deliveries slowed down. But that seems to be kind of um, recovering now. Everything's just about back to normal, certainly with the indie distributors. But it's the larger distributors who are still struggling. Uh, We find it here at the shop. Magazines like World of Interiors and Vogue only arrive very intermittently at present, which is frustrating, not least because the big publishers face far bigger problems than the indies. Uh, The mainstream rely on supermarket sales, an environment in which the hassle of queues and one-way systems quickly force the purchase of a magazine down the shopping list. And so people are coming to us and asking for these magazines, but at present, because of the complex chain of, of, of distributors that end up supplying them, uh, they're just, you know, more often than not, they're not arriving. But it's also frustrating because some of these magazines are doing great things at the moment. British Vogue, for instance, is responding really well to our times. Uh, the July issue had a set of three covers, each featuring a key worker, while inside there were some timely shoots that will become reference points for this summer. Jürgen Teller reverses his famous Go Sees book by visiting young aspiring models and shooting them outside their own homes. And a host of established models share selfies of themselves in lockdown. And moving forward a month, the current August issue of Vogue has 15 different covers, each an artwork by a different artist. And this is a project that uh, is, is far removed from the glossy commercial identity that we know the magazine for today and in fact almost harks back to the earlier 20th century kind of origins of Vogue which had a far more kind of uh, illustrative and and, and, um, art orientated uh, front cover policy. Obviously such covers are a result of the current difficulties organising photo shoots and keeping to social distancing and travelling rules but I really hope that some of these types of projects can continue to be present in that magazine and others in the mainstream in the future. 
talking of British Vogue, congratulations are due to its editor-in-chief, Edward Edenthorpe, who won Editor of the Year at the recent PPA Awards. We've been critical of his magazine in the past, but with the response to both the pandemic and latterly the Black Lives Matter movement, he seems to have found his moment. But if you want to dig more into the effect of the pandemic, listen to our Instagram Lives. There's lots of discussion there about how, whether we go ahead and publish, how we delay, what we do, how, how do we respond. Meanwhile, on our magazine shelves, recent arrivals we've been excited by include Barter Baby, a lovely little zine about exchanging goods during the pandemic. It shows how much can be effectively communicated by very little. Its 32 pages tell a story of goods bartered during the pandemic and reminds us of the early stages of the lockdown, the days of toilet roll panics and homemade sourdough. It has a lovely gentle character and is just a lovely record of the time with a little bit of humour, visually intriguing. It's a beautiful, small but beautiful project. There are also two design magazines that have published big celebrity birthday issues. Uh, iMagazine's latest marks 100 issues, more of which shortly, and Creative Review, which launched 40 years ago, has a special issue marking that birthday. They each provide their own insight into the state of design today and each highlight the role of magazines in creativity. Creative Review called together five of its editors from various eras for a Zoom discussion about the magazines and its changing role. And a list of 40 key creative moments opens with the arrival of The Face magazine in 1980 and ends with the US Vogue's first cover shot by a black photographer. It was Tyler Mitchell's portrait of Beyoncé uh, in 2018. It seems uh, astonishing that the first black photographer to work on the cover of Vogue was uh, 2018, but there you go. Uh, meanwhile, I leads with Richard Turley, the man behind the reinvention of Bloomberg Businessweek and countless other publications, including Civilization, his own project. Always a man with bold opinions, his is the most refreshing voice in the issue. I also highlights the work of young New York editorial designer Chloe Sheffe, whose work includes the magazine Here, published by luggage company Away. This is another exciting rival on our shelves, certainly one of the most visually striking publications we've seen in some time. Here magazine is very freeform in its appearance. Each story shifts mood graphically and typographically. Its layouts break all the rules and yet they still work, they hold together. That kind of rule breaking and, and not applying kind of grids and style sheets can sometimes be really visually exciting and stimulating, but it, the, ultimately it can be very hard to read. But Chloe Sheffy's designs for Here magazine are exciting, but yet legible. For obvious reasons, we've not been able to hold regular events at the shop, but a couple of weeks back we did hold a live event with our friends at iMagazine as they marked the arrival of that 100th edition with a display of the entire back catalogue of 100 magazines. These 100 editions were available for browsing and with pre-booked time slots and disposable gloves we were able to create a corona-safe environment for visitors to flick at their leisure. One special guest on the day was Rick Poyner, the founding editor of the magazine. With the entire run of 100 editions of I in front of them, he and Simon Esterson, art director and co-owner of the magazine, started an impromptu discussion about their front covers that I managed to listen in on. And later in this podcast, I'll have a longer chat with Rick about the origins of I. But first, here's an excerpt of his and Simon's front covers conversation. We've done other covers that have got elements about pre-processing, so we've got covers that got foiling on. Mm. But this one is the the 8,000 different digitally produced covers yeah. by Mia McNeil. I actually think that's one of the eye classics, that one. Well, it's that application. Well, the, the, that series, I mean. Yeah, the concept, but, but the, vi the visuals are just excellent each time. 
they are. You know, and it, that, and it, it doesn't ever come up badly that I've seen. They're no, always and beautiful. That, and that's partly that Muir McNeil, who were the only people I asked to mm. think about it, have such an absolute view. Yeah. And that that indigo technology is amazing. Yeah. But there's all sorts of kitsch things it will do, like rotate and change the colours. Mm. And actually, what Muir McNeil spent most of the time doing was turning off all the possibilities of the system. Holly had this brilliant idea when we did R.O. Blackman on the cover of getting R.O. Blackman to use his signature wobbly style mm. to redraw the logo. You know, the covers we've done are always, they're not, they're not as conceptual. I think, you know, when Nick was doing the covers, I think there was some real conceptual things going on. You like the print process ones, don't you? I, 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 well, I love print press. I love the printing process. And actually, yeah. you know, the, the cover is somewhere where you can do something. It, if you're going to spend money on complicated printing processes or special things, the cover's the place to spend it, isn't it? You know, none of these covers are what you call newsstand covers. You know, there, there are no cover lines. Um, I mean, you look back to Stevens, you know, the original covers and... I, you know, ama you know, reuse of these amazing cattle brands or uh, all these tight outlines overlaid. I think the almost thing about eye covers is that they there might be some kind of ways of thinking about them from different art directors, but actually you put them all together and they all look generally completely different. Yeah, I, I mean, if you put if you put a hundred, Stevens look a bit denser. Probably because he did do things like that with the type, which is all about packing it in, overlay, yeah. but again, graphic details which are kind of in tune with the time are very overloaded, layered, yeah. there's a visual density. I, I, I must say those are always the covers I like most because they were the most contemporary at the time, whereas it's fine to have type. <laughs> I know it's, it's, Eric, yeah. it, it's used to Van Rossman, Eric Van Blockland, yes. um, Beowulf probably, but still uh, it's, it's graphically very simple. Uh, and we were in an era which was electronic, layered, complex, so I, I like the images that reflect that. But, but then this is you, really bold, yeah. I mean just as a graphic which, form. Which one? The, the Jeff Kern? Uh, well, no. uh, Jeff, the Jeff Kern cover I think is interesting because it marks a, a particular period in photography. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that was the Jeff Kern moment, wasn't it? And I was, think, I was thinking much of this with just the, you know, the simple, you know, the arrow and the lips. And, you know, That's Rick Ferrisanti, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but every time you see a, yeah, a set of lips, you know, white background. there's all yeah. those magazine yeah. and record covers with lips on it, kind of, yeah. you know, I, refers I like to that those. Too. I think that's one of the best during the period I was doing, actually. Along with the soot and art, also great. Well, the soot and art is just a great... Detail, and I have to say, it's a fantastic game doing a cover. When, when, when we've been doing covers, of just it's about spotting. Sometimes you just go through all all the images and see, well, what you can do as a detail. So you know this cover from the corner of a, I think a Steinweiss, yeah. up in you know, an album cover. So just it's yeah, a, I, actually that's why I like a lot of it as well. And you know, inside, we're pretty faithful about how we show things. Mm. So again, the cover is somewhere where you can do something that, that's got a bit of um, aggression with the content or, you know, re-reimagining of the content.
maybe over time that that is almost like the classic I feel where yes. there, are, there are two elements and they're combined in an interesting and unexpected way uh, and they're intensely graphic so the one you were talking about based on the sword bass arm that's yes. got that quality this has that quality too actually this this has yeah, yeah. I you think know, that's what, Jay, what's this some Ken Garland or it's, something? It's, it's, it's Ken Garland plus my identity. Yeah. And Jay, Jay Prynne, Jay, Jay was working on the magazine with us then, and that was her sort of combination. And there's something about, you know, this incredibly satisfying Ken Garland yeah. colours and detail. And, and also, you know, the circle of the eyes yeah. and the circle yeah. in the pattern yeah. yeah. actually yeah. No, it's, it's the same size. It's really, it's really. So those, I think overall, out of the, the entire set, those are always my favourites, where there's at least two elements that come together in an unpredictable way. The magazine is making a graphic statement of its own. Yeah, absolutely. About, about the, the, our time, about history the, sometimes. The, it's yeah. kind of doing something with the material. Yeah, yeah remaking it, repurposing it. Thanks very much to Simon and Rick for letting me um, eavesdrop on that conversation and thanks for the insight into the design of the front covers. A little later that same day, Rick sat down with me to talk about his time at iMagazine, his thoughts on contemporary graphic design and the importance of self-publishing. He opened with the origins of iMagazine. Blueprint was published by WordSearch, and WordSearch was the original publisher of I, and we'll, we'll go on to that. But Blueprint was just a great place to be at the time. Um, it was a very exciting and adventurous architecture and design magazine. And when they did publish a graphic design story, because it had these huge pages, and it was laid out in this really punchy manner, the graphic content mm -hmm. always looked terrific. Uh, and I was struck immediately how it looked better in Blueprint than it looked in some of the monthly magazines, um, Creative Review and Direction in particular, that covered some of the same material mm -hmm. that we would occasionally put uh, into Blueprint on the, on the graphic side. So I, I, I was interested in writing about all kinds of um, architecture, design, a uh, bit of art, a bit of photography. I had a very broad remit. But I loved doing the graphic stories too, and I just saw an opportunity to build that up a bit. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was doing on Blueprint. And then one day, and I, I, it, this is one of those moments where you, you can't quite get to the bottom of how it happened. Simon and I, Simon was the original designer of Blueprint, and it pulled back. Stephen Coates was doing it by that stage, but Simon, as director of Word Search, was still around. Simon Esterson. Simon yeah, Esterson. Yeah. And we went out for coffee, and we were talking, and in that conversation it emerged that we both had the same fantasy, which is what it was, of a new graphic design magazine, which would be not a monthly, but more review-like. Mm -hmm. Now, which one of us said it first, I don't know, but we both had exactly the same thought. So there's a kind of meeting of minds, and there and then Simon challenged me, luckily we had pen and paper handy, to come up with a notional contents list mm -hmm. for that first issue. He then, as a director of the company, went back to his fellow directors, Dan Sujic, editor of Blueprint, Peter Murray, publisher of Blueprint, and they all agreed it was a good idea to launch a publication like that. And in remarkably short time, October 1990, the first issue appears. Um, with me as editor. And uh, Stephen Coates as art director. And Stephen Coates as yeah. art director. Yeah. And Ste yes, Stephen coming from Blueprint. Yeah, yeah. Give us a sort of sense of what the objective around that first issue was, because I has always positioned itself more as a as a sort of contemplative 
acknowledgement of history as well as the contemporary and the links between the two, perhaps. But yes. what was the intention? Well, uh, you, you've touched on some of it right there because um, there were these other publications, and actually, there, if I were to run through uh, the whole list of magazines publishing material about graphic design, you know, it runs to probably about ten titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the leading ones were undoubtedly Creative Review, which had been launched back in 1980, and then Direction, which had come out of Campaign magazine, and then it had, it had become freestanding. But Baseline was around then. There was a thing called Graphics World. Uh, there was Hot Graphics International, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was kind of grungy, very commercial magazine, but it was out there. So, mm-hmm. so it wasn't that graphic design was f- failing to be covered. In fact, it was being covered quite well and quite widely. What I felt, looking at all of that, is that the coverage was indeed all very newsy. It was very topical. Uh, What's happening? Who's the person of the moment? There were news stories, there were interviews, profiles, pieces, trend pieces, of Mm -hmm. course. What's the latest thing? And this was done in a perfectly reasonable, decent, journalistic way by writers who were journalists and could do the job. What it didn't attempt to do uh, was to reflect um, a bit more deeply on graphic design as a practice and the history of graphic design, the ideas that underpinned contemporary graphics even. It was, it was always handled in quite a superficial way. And my feeling, and this was based on what I would sometimes hear from designers, is that the designers would always know more about their subject as expert designers themselves than the writers covering it. In other words, the writing could feel a bit superficial. It didn't have a strong sense of history Mm -hmm. or context or or what the guiding ideas of visual communication might be. And I guess by by the nature of of that, the subject being directed by the designer, it meant that they could dictate the direction that any story would take. So there wasn't a sort of critical voice to it. It was just reporting. Well, this, this, is a, this is something I thought about then, and I've thought about it a lot since, because um, the fact is, if you are writing about designers, um, especially back in the day when there was no internet, there was no social media, there was no promoting yourself, you either got publicity in a publication or you didn't. So, so actually, what the, what the publication was giving was highly sought after. So if, if, if as a writer, as a journalist, you kind of you went along with that and you wrote someone up, um, there was a real danger that in the end you weren't so much serving your own agenda as a writer, as someone thinking about the subject, you were just serving the publicity agenda mm-hmm. of the designer. And what I felt coming back to I was if we were going to do that, if we were going to single people out and write about them, it had to be in a fairly detached and critical-minded way. And when I say critical, I don't mean trying to um, tear people down, to write about them adversely. I just mean to think long and hard about what someone was telling you and to try to place that in context. But to place anything in context, you need an understanding of the context. You need to understand recent history and past history. So the idea with I was to try to build up a kind of a team of writers who could bring that kind of depth, that kind of insight, penetration, critical mm-hmm. detachment. I'm not saying in those early issues we always achieved it, but that was the goal. That's where we but, were trying to get to. Absolutely. But also, very uh, importantly, um, quite a sort of pure sense of graphic design. Yeah. 
it was about graphic design. It wasn't it wasn't uh, graphic designers who did product. It wasn't graphic designers who were working in advertising. But what what you're describing about about the the general coverage, I mean, that was trade and professional journalism. Yes. It, it was, Perfectly decent and proper. It's what it does, but it was what it was, and, yeah. and that was built on recruitment. And yeah. so, so they they had various sections and departments covering the various sections of creativity. But this new magazine was just going to be about graphic design, yeah. and in the process, it was almost helping to define what was still relatively a relatively small and new practice in a sense. Yeah. Yes. If we look at it uh, both nationally and worldwide, obviously it was a lot smaller. Um, than it is today, but that doesn't mean it was small. There were still, yes, yeah. you know, thousands of but, designers but, out there, absolutely. and, there, but, but and there, were, there was a, quite a cast of, you know, well-established, well-known designers. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the people who are still regarded as heroes, you know, they, they were there at the time. They were absolutely. They were working. They were still alive. Some of them. I guess what I mean is, it, 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 there, there was a point. The eighties was a point at which the, the, it was an exponential growth. Yes, and 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 you arrived at a very key moment. At, sort of at the juncture of that growth. Yes, and I agree it was a key moment. I think, for me, what was so interesting about it, coming into this from... Uh, not not from a, an education as a graphic designer, I'm not a graphic designer, but coming into this as someone who was interested in visual things, visual art, visual culture, um, graphic design at a certain point, in the, probably in the late 70s, the early 80s, that era of um, fantastic covers on rock records um, by that new generation of designers, and Neville Brody would be one of them, Peter Savile, all those now familiar names. That happening, then the style magazines uh, arriving in the early 80s, The Face again, that was 1980, wasn't it? ID magazine, Blitz magazine, writing about culture with a very alert visual eye. So this was, for me, this was sort of building through the 80s. And at that point when I started to have the opportunity to write about graphic design, I was already quite deeply immersed in the culture. And so this was a culture that was happening here in Britain. These things I mentioned were Mm -hmm. were very British and some of them were influential abroad. But in the course of all that, I started to look in, and this is even before I became a journalist at all, let alone a design journalist, look into what was happening in Dutch graphic design Mm -hmm. culture. And because because I had a visual background, I'd studied the his, history of art. So you know, I was a visual person already. I was fascinated to find such interesting experimental work coming out of the modernist tradition. Mm-hmm. And then in the course of the eighties, um, this whole uh, idea, much discussed, much um, loathed at times, of postmodernism mm-hmm. takes off, and that has an impact on design too. And there's tensions going on within design, arguments happening between two generations. In other words, there was a lot to write about. You know, it was it was like a subject matter that was at that point really happening. And graphic designers had an enormous, as it seemed to me, and at times quite bullish new confidence. You know, from, from Neville Brody himself mm-hmm. through to the end of the 80s, the emergence of people like Why Not Associates. That's their name. Why not? Why can't we do what we want graphically? Why shouldn't we do it? Graphic designers were very confident about what they were doing. And I think they realised at that point that as the culture became more visual, the, this consumer culture, 
in the post-war period leading all the way through to the so-called design boom of the 80s, um, so the designer was in an increasingly key position. And powerful. Yeah. yeah. So iMagazine in 1990 arrived at just the right moment to begin to take stock of that. And we haven't even talked about, you know, the, the massive debate that happened around um, the use of the computer, the mm -hmm. effects on typography. There was a lot to talk about. So a hundred issues later, there's a body of magazines that sort of sum up so many of those discussions over, over those um, 30 years. What other key moments? Have there, have there been other times across those 30 years where there's been an explosion, in your view? Well, the, the period when I was fo most focused on graphic design was the 1990s. Mm -hmm. As I said, I spent the 80s kind of getting deeper and deeper into it, and mm -hmm. then I was in a position to do something with this, write about it, edit a magazine, and so on. But to come back to this interesting question you asked about key moments, there was a feeling throughout the 90s yeah. that it was a continuation of the boom that had started in the 80s. And, uh, you know, also we recall it's that moment when, you know, Russia, um, Soviet Union starts to collapse, um, a feeling that this sort of uh, Western the West is one. way of life yeah. and ideology is one, a sort of triumphalism. Mm -hmm. And so in the course of the 90s, I found myself um, getting more and more disquieted by what struck me as the complacency of design, mm -hmm. design in general, but graphic design in particular we're talking about. So one, one of the pieces um, we published in I that always was most significant for me is a piece by Andrew Howard, who's a designer and teacher mm -hmm. based in Portugal, but from Britain, um, called There Is Such a Thing as Society, which we published, I seem to recall, in 1994. Mm -hmm. And that was published very much against the flow no, why, why is iMagazine, one might have asked, insisting on the underlying fundamental politics of design as an activity? You know, why, why did it want to wag the finger at that point? I very much remember the American reaction or non-reaction to that piece. There was a huge uproar over Steve Heller's Cult of the Ugly yeah, piece yeah. when designers were criticised by mm. Heller for their ugly design, as, as he saw it. Not mm. as I saw it, but as he saw it, it was his piece. Um, and a huge mailbag for a magazine, you know, again, in these pre-internet days when you couldn't yeah. put your comment in a comment box, but you had to actually mail or fax your letter. Um, a, great, a great response. So when I published There Is Such a Thing as Society, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could generate a discussion around this issue? And it didn't happen. I think that, that complacency I was talking about continued. Mm -hmm. So to come back to your key moments, by the end of the decade, after I'd left I, but was still involved with I, um, when I, I, I got involved with Adbusters and some mm -hmm. other people in this campaign to relaunch First Things First, Ken Garland's manifesto yeah. in a new version, First Things First 2000. At that point, there is an attempt by some of us in design to try and say, wait a minute, can we, can we think a bit harder about what the fundamental underlying purposes of design should be? And in other words, just to get a discussion going. And that, so that, that for me, um, although it comes after my time as editor as I, iMagazine was still key mm -hmm. in relaunching mm -hmm. the manifesto. That's probably a really, a really significant moment. So that was 2000, and that now we're 2020, and the magazine's just published its 100th 
issue. Do you find you still read the magazine? What do you find from it? Well, I'm still in it. I've been in, uh, had pieces in 98 out of 100 issues. Mm-hmm. So what I think about I is I created a magazine that then became a, a platform in which I could continue to write. Mm-hmm. It's really worked out amazingly. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect this. That wasn't the plan, but it's what's happened. Uh, I'm friends with um, John Walters, the editor, and Simon, art director, who are co-owners now. The magazine has been through a succession of owners. And initially, it was WordSearch, small independent company. Then it was EMAP. Then it was Quantum. Then it was Haymarket. And then finally... Um, Simon and John. It's, 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 it's rather a kind of test case of, 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 of ownership and, and, and what it brings to it or yeah. doesn't bring to a magazine. But but actually, it stayed itself. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been changed by any of those owners. They've respected it enough, or they perhaps they failed to understand it um, in, in enough to to bring about any change. They let it be what it wanted to be. And what it is now, when you look at it, when you look at the hundred issues in your shop. Um, it looks like the same, or it could almost be the same publisher. I mean, it's, it's astonishing that it was able to remain as true to itself as it was. So for me, as, a, as now as writer and contributor, it's just remained the perfect platform. It's still the publication I would most like to write for. I have one final question, and, and that's just simply, you know, you spoke, spoken very eloquently about certain periods. What about the wider world of graphics? Where is graphics now? What's, what's good and what's bad? I followed this, uh, this field a long time. The 80s and then the 90s were the period of maximum interest for me. I've had periods since 2000 when I've been less interested, less engaged or less attentive. Oddly, in the last four or five years, perhaps through going um, to the University of Reading and teaching there, I've returned to the subject with closer attention, uh, it seemed to me that certain things had happened um, in that period, probably from about 2005, six, for the next decade, that were never properly um, analysed by design publications. There was uh, the birth of a... It was actually called the Global Style um, by Geoffrey Keady, the Californian designer and writer, uh, You'd see it everywhere. It was probably produced by uh, highly educated designers. Probably they were on an MA course or they had MAs. Um, It looked in some ways like the experimental digital typography and design of the 90s period, but it wasn't exactly the same as that, and it wasn't being done for the same reason. It It looked arty. It looked quite cerebral. It looked, I guess... If you didn't know graphic design, a bit quirky and bizarre. But I I re-engaged with it, and I started to wonder why it was that design magazines, which possibly even include I, had never really addressed Mm -hmm. it. It was ubiquitous, yet not talked about. So that was odd, that on the Mm -hmm. one hand, you've got something that's diffused around the world. You know, it's everywhere. Um, Everyone knows it, recognises it, can do it, and yet it's not talked about. Most peculiar. But that's one of the challenges generally, isn't it? The, the globalisation, the internationalisation of, of, and the instant kind of uh, gratification of seeing stuff on social media and the influence, you know, everything just travels. It yes. just as, as soon as something's published, if it makes a splash, everyone's got the splash. Yeah. So the, the, so the, the question, I guess, throughout that whole period we're talking about, from you know, mm-hmm. around about 2000, but through to the present, 
has been, um, okay, we, we argued in the 90s, and iMagazine was part of this, that a certain kind of critical writing was needed. Actually, to help the, the, the field, the practice, kind of develop, grow, understand itself better, become more self-aware, art has it, architecture has it, why wouldn't graphic design have the same kind of self-awareness? But then, in that, in, in that kind of internet era that then became the era of social media, it was easy for designers effectively to promote and publicise their own work. Journalism wasn't needed anymore to do that. Um, that had a real impact on all of the publications, and as we know, some went under. Mm -hmm. But at which point the critical side of journalism becomes even more important. I th I think it does, but it becomes more of a struggle to keep yeah, doing it. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely believe what I believed all along that the whole point of the you know, i magazine and other publications like it at the time was to try and raise the standard of discussion because we were interested in the field. We believed in the field, if we if you like, we were certainly inspired by the field, but we thought it could only improve the practice of design to be self aware critically aware, um, to, to have some theories, some mm. concepts, sh some shared terms of reference. So alongside iMagazine, where else should the young graphic designer be turning to for intelligent, critical thought about design, graphic design? I think that um, the website AIGA Ion Design became an excellent source of design journalism which uh, and the editors and the writers saw it as their mission like proper journalists to track what was going on mm. and and if I were a, I mean I look at it anyway but if I were a younger designer in fact I recommend it to students if they don't happen to have uh, seen it yet I say go mm -hmm. have a look at that you can find it there now of course they launched a printed publication uh, and that's interesting because they do a lot of funky things on the page that they don't yeah. necessarily yeah, yeah, do yeah, on yeah. the web. I, I think it's developing slowly. I, I think the last I heard it might have dropped to annual, it might even have dropped altogether. Well, there we are. But, Pro but the proving, website proving, yeah, The website yeah, is, is performing uh, a very valuable service. So it is interesting if it's gone occasional. I hope it hasn't just stopped, but um, AIGA on design. Because the the interesting reading tends to be in publications that are pretty occasional. So an example of that would be Francisco Laranjo's Modes of Criticism publication, which he does maybe a couple of issues a year at most. It's small, it's journal-like, no pictures, it's all text, but you know it's interesting. It's, it's interesting critical writing. Another example of that kind of publishing would be Counter Signals, published out of Chicago. Again, that appears about once a year. Um, I want to pick up on the, the lack of announced reg regular yeah. production, which, I mean, it, that might be, I mean, in the world of independent publishing, that is a kind of de facto, just sometimes it's a struggle to get the thing done. Yeah. But do you think there's also, in this sphere, a degree of wanting, not, not wanting just to fill the pages, but to wait till you've got the right material. The, the, the quality has, is more important than the quantity. Well, I think the people that we're talking about, with the exception of um, AIGA, mm -hmm. Ion Design, which obviously is produced by an organisation, but um, modes of criticism, uh, uh, counter signals, um, bricks from the kiln would uh -huh. be another example. Yeah, these, these are small groups of people, or, or even just solitary individuals, doing um, 
the the commissioning, the editing at their own pace, having to find funding or a partner that will co-fund with them. Um, there's no way they can commit to four issues a year, let alone being a monthly. You need a you don't need a, a commercial framework to mm-hmm. do that. You just mm-hmm. can't do it. So I really admire that kind of spirit of self-publishing because you know it comes from the heart. They really mean it. They only do it because they believe in it. They're probably losing <laughs> money at it. It's eating into time they could use for their teaching work or their, this, well, their, I mean, <laughs> their personal practice. Um, I, I don't think it's just gra- in graphic design coverage. I think yeah. there's a world... I mean, there's it's a lot the of people listening to this conversation who will be yeah. recognising this pattern. But, I, you know, I, I'm totally as... Although uh, I'm a different generation now, my days of magazine obsession, uh, uh, you know, they're past. I had about 20 years. I've got a storage unit with shelves in full of magazines. Mm-hmm. I just, I haven't got space for any more magazines. I'm highly selective now, but I completely support the culture of doing it. I get it and I support it. And I, 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 I've always argued um, that, that this sort of... Uh, self-initiated activity and self, self-publishing is a vital antidote to kind of newsstand, corporate, mass market, often slightly patronising kinds of publishing. Um, I, I just see that as kind of street-level democracy in action. It's people with something to say and they want to say it in their own way and in their own style. And that's what culture is. You don't, you don't want it all from the top down. You want to create your own. Absolutely. Well, again, there'll be a lot of people listening to this who, for whom that is, um, they, are, they are nodding and nodding. Thank you very much, Rick, for joining us and sharing those thoughts on both on magazines and on, on the state of graphic design. Uh, thank you, too, to the whole I-team for making the day such a success. It was a pleasure to host the project, and it looked fantastic. There are some pictures alongside this podcast on, on our website. I hope you have a good look at them, and I can't recommend their birthday issue uh, enough. Uh, one final thing before we go after the break is our back issue and uh, we'll be going to be looking at uh, a magazine that I don't think Rick actually mentioned in his discussion there but it's absolutely germane to that discussion about magazines and graphic design uh, and that is we're going to be looking at Emigre magazine um, so back in a moment London Printers Park Communications are a key part of the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers make their dreams a reality. The shelves of the Mag Culture Shop are packed with examples of their work. But as well as helping you achieve the highest creative standards, Park are fully committed to helping you produce your magazine in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner. Check their new website for full details. Search Park Communications. Just like Mag Culture, Park Communications love magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor this podcast. And so to our back issue. Every episode we look back at a magazine from the past and this one relates to what Rick Poyner was saying about the role of iMagazine. Emery Gray was launched in the late 80s by designer Rudy Vanderlands and typographer Susanna Lico. Themselves emigrants to the United States, the early issues addressed the status and experience of being an emigre. The magazine was even subtitled A Magazine for Exiles. It was one of the first to use the new Apple Macintosh and associated software for its design and production, and it developed an experimental aesthetic as it pushed the new technology. 
The large format pages and Lico's new bitmap typography aligned it with other experimental design projects of the time, and for issue 9 it formally shifted direction to address graphic design itself, that issue covering Vaughan Oliver's sleeve designs for 4AD records. There followed a series of issues, all the way up to number 32, that became a reference point for the design debate and critique in, in the late 80s and early 90s. A new generation of primarily American designers were given a platform for their work and views. The page designs were essentially a glorified specimen sheet for the new emigre type foundry based on Lico's designs, but also including typefaces from a whole range of people including Geoffrey Keady, Barry Deck and P. Scott Michaela. The selection was the first serious attempt to create new fonts for the Mac environment. As typographically uncompromising as Raygun, Emigre was hugely influential in opposing the traditional forces of modernism. From a magazine-making point of view, the design aesthetic and the content were perfectly balanced, each equally critical of their respective forebearers. I remember flicking through issues and feeling thrilled by the way the experimental fonts served to emphasise the writing. There was a delicious and uninhibited freedom to the page layouts that recall the early days of the internet, the context into which they were publishing. The Apple Map and associated software has now been reined in, but like Raygun, Emigre was testing the new production environment and the thrill of design still shines through on the pages if you look back at them. It's well worth trying to track some down. Hard to find, expensive to find, but it's well worth having a look at these magazines for a truly unique record of an era and a time. That's all for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope to be back with another one soon. Meanwhile, listen out for our weekly Instagram live interviews. And lastly, a huge thanks to everyone for supporting Mag Culture in these strange times. See you soon. Mm-hmm.